Welcome to our third installment of our church history lesson on the Synod of Dort. I will give you a couple of introductory comments here in a minute, but first, let's hear from the Word of the Lord. Let's go to John 10. While you're turning, I'm also going to ask you to stand. So you need to stand and turn in your Bibles and prepare your hearts to hear God's Word. I think you all can do that. So John 10, we're going to read verses 7 through, um, and then a significant part of this uh, section of Scripture. John 10, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, came, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's skip down a couple of verses. Verse 24. So the Jews are gathering and they have questions for Jesus. And they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answers them and said, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, our goal is to worship you. Oh, Lord, we worship you because of the great work you've done on our behalf uh, through Jesus. Lord, I praise you that you have uh, set us apart. You have saved us. You have justified us by Christ's work. And Lord, that you are working to persevere us and to bring us to glory complete Oh, Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, praise you for the promises that are revealed in this text of Scripture. Lord, I pray that we would seek uh, comfort in uh, these doctrines that we talk about today as we consider uh, your work in salvation and what you're doing and have done and prepared for us. So, Lord, I pray that your name would be exalted today and that we would leave here uh, glorying in you, uh, desiring to grow in holiness 
And Lord, growing in humility for the work that you've done for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Last week, uh, we've talked now for two weeks um, about the Synod of Dort. And last week, I spent 15 minutes or so introducing why we're talking about that. And it's not a good idea for me to spend that time again today. So... We are, last week our primary uh, new topic was about the first point of doctrine that the uh, Reformed Church was correcting um, in opposition to a group called the Remonstrants, uh, the followers of Jacob Arminius in the Netherlands. And that point last week was about divine election and reprobation. Just the general idea behind that was that God has... Uh, decreed and elected from eternity past, who would believe, who would be saved. God is actively electing. That was point one, and we talked about that from uh, how it was written in the canons of Dort. So the Dutch church meets in the city of Dortchek in 1618 and 1619. It's 2018, it's the 400th anniversary, and that's why we're talking about it. That's why it piqued my interest, at least. And um, they're answering five points from the remonstrance, and that was the first one about divine election. So we have four more points to cover today. So sit tight. Buckle up. We'll see how it is. Now, I do want to emphasize I'm not making an apologetic defense of these things. I am just portraying for you what the, uh, as I coined them last week, the Dortian divines uh, have written and I think it would be beneficial for your instruction. Last week I instructed you about five times to read the canons of Dort, and uh, so I will remind you to do that again. Uh, so we have, these are the four, the points that they're arguing here are the traditional, quote-unquote, five points of Calvinism. Uh, so these are the Reformed faith, uh, the Reformed church's view on salvation, Okay. So, the second main point of doctrine last week was on divine election, the first main point, as you can see in your uh, study guide. Also in your study guide, it is August 26th, not August 25th, so don't use my notes for your calendar today, but yesterday when I was working on that study guide, it was August 25th, and when I was working on my lesson too, because it says the same. All right, so the second main point of doctrine we're going to talk about is Christ's death and human redemption through it. Um, This is the position of the remonstrance. So the remonstrance are the followers of Jacob Arminius. Um, This is a a brief statement about that, and then I'll unpack it a little bit. The atonement was made universally for all, including those who refuse to believe. The effects of Christ's redemption depend upon man's believing or not. So they believed that Christ's atonement paid for the sins of every man without exception. Now, please understand, that does not mean every man would come to faith in their understanding. They were not universalists thinking everyone is going to be saved. Um, but they believed that, um, that as a man came to faith, it was available for anyone to come to faith uh, based on the work of Christ. Um, So even in some ways, their application of the atonement is conditioned on man's faith, much like um, election for the the Arminian 
is based on um, man's faith. Um, they believe that Christ merited the remission of sins, but man's sins are not forgiven, actually, until he believes in Christ. So, uh, it's a dependent work. If Christ, is, Christ has died on the cross, man has to believe, and once man believes, it becomes applied to their account in their, in their view. Um, they believe, so, in, so the term that the Calvinists or the Reform use is limited atonement. In some ways, you could argue that the Arminians or the Remonstrants also hold to limited atonement. It's just limited by man's faith, Okay. Um, so there's an a understanding there that they both, on some grounds, are stating that uh, the atonement itself could be limited. Um, a, uh, maybe a cheeky um, critique, real quickly, of that uh, doctrine would say, uh, and this is a traditional Reformed argument, that little or nothing maybe is accomplished in the atonement without man's will. I mean, that's accurate. Man has to do something. Um, Christ's work only gives the possibility of salvation if, if the atonement is made available to everyone. Um, so is the atonement truly powerful to save is the question. Um, and that's what the Reformed are trying to unpack. Um, so oddly enough, we're still trying to unpack uh, TULIP in the Calvinistic doctrine, and we still haven't gotten to the T, so we're at the U right now or the L, I'm sorry, for limited atonement. Um, I, I introduced this last week. I prefer the term definite atonement. Uh, limited seems to speak of some negative connotations, and we'll talk about, and I think the, uh, the, the writers of the Canons of Dort uh, understand that, and they're unpacking it a little bit here. So I like the term um, definite atonement or particular redemption. It is here that the Reformed faith rejoices in the special love that Jesus has for the elect, for his bride, which is the church. Um, the reform would say Jesus' love is not generic, but rather personal in particular, so for his bride, the church, and in saving individuals. Uh, just like we read in John 10, just now, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So a correct understanding of this doctrine should cause the Christian to worship and love Christ for eternity. Each of these doctrines that we unpack today um, should create in you a desire to worship God more, um, should cause you to be more humble about who God is, and should propel you into holy living. That's the goal of uh, the authors of the Canons of Dort. That's what they want to see. They don't want to create frozen chosen Calvinists. They don't want to create people that are carnal in their living and their sinfulness because they are, quote-unquote, of the elect, that's not their desire. So that's an introduction to the uh, reform position of limited atonement um, or definite atonement. All right, so just like last week, I think last week there were 17 or 18 articles and nine rejections in describing uh, divine election. This week there are nine articles, in, well, every week, but nine articles and seven rejections specifically talking about uh, the doctrine of limited atonement. Uh, in my research of these five points, this is the one that had the most argument and discussion. Probably the one that we most have the most discussion and arguments about too. So um, they know that and they're discussing what is the best way to document this doctrine. 
Um, there was a concern about the sufficiency and the efficacy of Christ's atonement, and that's what they want to write about. So, if you're looking at your handout, we're at Article 1 of this doctrine. Okay, so I actually prepared this part last week, so I will give you more details here, and then as we go forward, you're going to get fewer and fewer details for time's sake. Article 1 uh, is, describes the punishment which God's justice requires. So they're kind of setting the table here, a view towards the entire uh, view of redemptive history. So who is God? Who is man in light of who God is? So if you look at that, you should have Article 1 right there. We'll, we'll read this. I'm going to spend some time reading the text a couple times just because it's of great benefit. So Article 1 says the following. Um, the punishment which God's justice requires. God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. His justice requires, as He has revealed Himself in the Word, that the sins we have committed against His infinite majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments of soul as well as body. We cannot escape these punishments, punishments unless satisfaction is given to God's justice. So the reform begin with God's character. So the first statement says that God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. So you're seeing both of those characteristics of who God is. Um, the, uh, the remonstrance in their initial statement began with God's love exclusively. In some ways, they pit God's love against His justice. Um, and that's, that was an accusation they accused the Reformed of being too cold and hard. They thought the, the Reformed church had made God out to be too severe. But as you can see here, they're talking about God's justice and His mercy. Um, um, it is incorrect to pit any of God's attributes against each other. The doctrine of God's simplicity um, is important there. God is complete in all of His attributes. So when God is loving, He doesn't cease to be just. Or when God is just, He doesn't cease to be loving. He is all those things at all times, forever and ever. Amen. Um, so the canons of Dort do not exalt God's justice over His mercy. They just balance out the whole character of who God is. This is the whole counsel of God as revealed in Scripture. Article 2, the satisfaction made by Christ. I think I gave this one to you as well. Good. I had to indent it to the left, if y'all noticed, to make sure I had enough paper. Article 2, the satisfaction made by Christ. Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction or deliver ourselves from God's anger, God in His boundless mercy has given us as a guarantee His only begotten Son who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross in order that he might give satisfaction for us. So, God gave Jesus to bear the penalty for our sins. This is substitutionary atonement. Think of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Article 3 talks about the infinite value of Christ's death. I did not put this on there for you, but this is where they start struggling with, okay, so... If Jesus only died for the elect, to what extent 
How powerful is the atonement? Article 3, which I did not give to you, says this. This death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. All right, so you can't satisfy, uh, you can't do something to satisfy uh, uh, for the sins that you've committed. Secondly, it is of infinite value and worth. All right, so there's nothing lacking in Jesus' sacrifice. It is of infinite value and worth, okay? It is complete. And then they state the following, that it is more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the entire world, okay? So that's the idea of um, it is sufficient to atone for the entire world's sin, yet as they continue to unpack, it is efficient or effective for the elect only, okay? So in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, there was nothing lacking in it, okay? It was perfect. So then they move to, okay, so that's how, um, that's the infinite value of Christ's death. So we elevate that. We see Christ as infinitely valuable. But why? What are the reasons why it's infinitely valuable? And it's two reasons why it's infinitely valuable. One is the person of Jesus. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. He's perfect. There's nothing lacking in, the, in Christ. The second thing is the work of Jesus. So the person of Jesus is a reason. The other thing is the work of Jesus. Um, and that is that Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life in submission to the Father. <clears throat> so those are the reasons that there is infinite value in the atonement. And then the Calvinists, the Reformed, take another turn here. Like the, the Surprisingly, the next article talks about the mandate to proclaim the gospel to all. So the Dortian divines aren't of an, any notion that God's just going to you know, save people apart from means. He's, they are saying it would be obedient, it is obedient for people to proclaim the gospel to everyone. So is, that is our responsibility um, and is not man's responsibility to decide who is the elect. That's God's job. Um, so we are called to proclaim the gospel of uh, belief and repentance to everyone. Article 6 talks about unbelief being the result of man's sinfulness. It's his responsibility. God is not cultivating unbelief in people's heart. Article 7. I can unpack these all significantly more, but we're just going to keep going. Article 7 talks about faith being God's gift. So all glory for anyone being saved is ascribed to God. Faith is God's precious gift to the believer. Uh, think of uh, Rome, uh, Romans, Ephesians 2.8 at that point. Article 8. All right, this is where we get to the nitty-gritty. The saving effectiveness of Christ's death. This one's a little long, so stay with me. I'm going to read it, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones. Why? 
in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should grant them faith, which like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original, so that's original sin, and actual sins you've committed in your life, whether committed before or after coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the end, and that he should finally present to himself a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. Um, So, you probably are seeing allusions to Scripture throughout that. Christ shed His blood on the cross to effectively redeem those who were from eternity to salvation and given to Him by the Father. It's for all people groups. So, there's not this elite view of this is just for the Dutch Reformed Christians. This is for all people from all nations and all tribes. Um, And it's through the atonement that the Spirit grants electing faith. The believer is cleansed from all sin through this. And then, interesting, at the end, it says the atonement is actually the grounds for perseverance as well, is that God will complete His work because of Christ's work on the cross to save sinners. Article 9 then goes to the fulfillment of God's plan. Um, And really, in this section, it really brings much comfort to the believer. So, from election to the atonement of Christ, to regeneration and sanctification by the Spirit, God's saving purposes are undefeatable. Okay? That is what they're ascribing here in this section on the atonement. So what should this do for us? These are a couple of closing comments. Two things. Um, it should remind us that the church, and only the church, is the bride of Christ and he has paid for her with his blood. Um, so that should cause us to be in persistent love and worship of God for what Jesus has done on our behalf. It unites us as a church since we are saved by the particular and personal, individually, atonement of Jesus. So that's, that's what's uniting us. We have a lot of things we have in common. Some of y'all might like to read books or play football or watch football or sing, but what unites us aren't those things. It's what Jesus' atonement has given us, okay? And we are united. We individually are united with Christ, and that's our common identity together. Um, So, I think there's great hope there. All right, so next, we're going to go to point number three and four. So, the the, the Dortian fathers did do something good for me here, and that's where they combined uh, point three and four. Point three being human corruption, and then point four being conversion to God and the way it occurs. So, in your tulip, if you understand that, uh, the T is total depravity. That fits right here. And so, now we're getting to total depravity. So, it wouldn't spell tulip if we did it the other way. And the I is irresistible grace. So, those are the two heads of doctrine that are approached here. 
And specifically, these two points describe man's inability to come to God apart from his sovereign grace. Um, And again, in this, the uh, canons of Dort were written um, to um, encourage Christians to greater humility, holiness, and worship. I've said that like ten times in three weeks. So the reason is we're not trying to create robots here. We're trying to... the, the God is trying to mold a people to save them, to set them apart, and to grow them into Christ-likeness. And these doctrines, studying them and knowing them is God's goal, or, is, or studying them and knowing them is the goal of the fathers at Dort was for that. All right, so the remonstrance position in this area. Um, man still has a free will capable of submitting to God's truth. Um, there's some debate as to some degree how extreme uh, um, the remonstrants or the Armenians believe man is depraved, uh, but there is, in some ways, in man's freedom, the ability to come to God. They believe God's grace can be resisted so that um, you can reject God. Um, grace, in their view, is synergistic. And this means that man cooperate, cooperates with grace to deliver, cooperates with, with God's grace to deliver him out of his state of depravity and bondage. Um, it is different than um, a Roman Catholic view of, uh, of uh, doing good works, um, yet still man and God are cooperating in his salvation equation. Um, the Arminian might even admit that God's grace initiates, but man reserves the right to resist and thwart God's saving purposes. <clears throat> so they would argue that grace is necessary. We agree with that. But in some way, they would argue that grace is not effectual. Um, and the Reformed disagreed with this position. And that's the next heading. Um, in this position, numbers three and four, um, there are 17 articles and nine rejections of errors. Um, the rejections, again, like I said last week, there's a lot of nuance to them. You've got to sit down and maybe diagram the sentences if you really want to get to them. So I would encourage the articles to you, but if you want to read the uh, rejections as well, you can. But I'm not unpacking those for um, clarity of my head, I think, is the reason. Uh, so... Uh, in this section, I'm going to give you just general headings for each of these. I'm going to give you some details about what I've kind of broken these up into subsets. So Articles 1, three, one through 3 describe the pervasiveness of depravity that resulted from Adam's fall. Uh, particularly in those articles, it says that all people are unfit for any saving good. They're inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. So that's man's condition. That's pretty total. Radical is another term for depravity. Radical depravity. Um, so that's man's condition, Articles 1 through 3. Articles 4 and 5 talk about the inadequacy of the light of nature and the inadequacy of the law to save. So man might have some knowledge of God, maybe some knowledge of right and wrong, understanding of that by nature, um, but that knowledge isn't enough to save. Same thing with the law. Not, man might know the law and might um, understand the law, 
Um, but ultimately, um, he has an understanding of what the law is, but it is not sufficient to say, just to save, because he's sinful. <clears throat> Man does have some natural understanding of right and wrong and notions of God, but that does not provide the enablement for man to come to saving faith. The law exposes sin and may produce conviction in man, um, but you need something else, which is Article 6, which is the saving power of the gospel. And this sounds like Romans. Romans 6 says, or Article 6 says, What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God accomplishes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word or the ministry of reconciliation. This is the gospel about the Messiah through which it has pleased God to save believers in both the Old and New Testament. So that's the solution to man's sin problem is the gospel. Um, Article 7, 8, 9, and 10 um, talk about the gospel. First, they admit in Article 7 that God is free in how he reveals the gospel. And then they describe the gospel call and that it is serious. That is a legitimate call. Man is responsible for the rejection of the gospel, yet then conversion is the work of God, not man. God effectively calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and brings them into the kingdom of his son. That's Article 7, 8, 9, and 10. Article 11, this is the work of the Spirit in conversion, which you should have in your handout. Let's hope. Yes, you do. <clears throat> so this is how conversion works. So we have a depraved man, and we have the gospel. So how does God cause that to happen? And that's the Spirit's work. It says, moreover... When God carries out this good pleasure in his chosen ones or works true conversion in them, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them. Okay, this, think about the things God is doing here. He not only sees to that that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of God, of the Spirit of God, but, so he not only does that, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, he does these things. He also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. And what does he do also? He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one, willing, and the stubborn one, compliant. He activates and strengthens the will so that like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. That's a good summary. That's, there's a lot in there, and you can unpack it. No. <laughs> but regeneration is a miraculous act of God. This, this Going to the other points as well. Um, it is effective... It is unfailing and certain. Um, um, the regeneration is compared to, in these articles, the act of creation and God raising a man from the dead. 
the man regenerated by grace is able to repent and believe. Um, there's even encouragement given that, that perfect understanding of this. This is in number 13 for your, understanding, or for your notes. Uh, in Article 13, I'm not going to read it. But he, they talk about the uh, degree to which we can understand this. And on some level, uh, understanding God's work of uh, salvation Parts of it are going to be incomprehensible to us to completely understand it perfectly, this side of heaven. Um, let's see, where am I? Uh, yes, and then the number 17, um, faith is a gift of God bestowed on him, breathed and infused into him, not given. He was, man is not just given the potential to believe, Okay. That's what they're counteracting is the, the remonstrants say that God is giving everyone the opportunity to believe. And um, specifically, the Reformed are saying, no, this is what has to happen. God does all these things to regenerate man. Articles 15, 16, and 17 to close out this point. This is where they get to, it's like a good sermon. They get to application here. The primary response of the believer in growing and understanding this doctrine, these doctrines, uh, the response should be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that there's nothing I have to offer God. This is all God's work. Um, but they also encourage Christians to think and speak favorably of those who profess their faith and that there's evidence of them bettering their life. There's not in the Christian um, the, um, I guess the... Uh, God does not give the Christian the job of going and hitting people on the head and saying you're of the elect or not the elect. Um, they're asking Christians to show deference to each other, to those who proclaim Christ. Um, so that's, that's very gracious to these guys, of these guys. Um, also in this point, they uh, inform Christians or they inform the Christians to pray for those who have not come to faith. So there's, you are praying, you are sharing, um, and never should Christians esteem themselves better um, than others uh, because of the grace that's been given to them and granted to them. Um, Christians should be the most humble people. Um, article 16, in conclusion, talks about the effect of regeneration. Part of it says, I don't think I gave this to you, it says, as a result of regeneration, a ready and sincere obedience of the Spirit now begins to prevail, where before <clears throat> the rebellion and resistance of the flesh were completely dominant. It is in this that the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will consists. Thus, if the marvelous maker of every good thing were not dealing with us, man would have no hope of getting up from his fall by his free choice. So ultimately, we should rejoice in what God has done in saving us. <clears throat> and his grace is irresistible. Um, I think I've talked about each of those things. Okay, good. I'm ahead of schedule here. All right, so the fifth point. Here we are. So this is actually falls in line with your tulip. So P is for perseverance of the saints. Um, and this deals with the, the question is whether a Christian who's once converted can lose his salvation. Um, a, a couple quick summary statements about this doctrine. Um, according to the 
um, canons of Dort, God not only elects and provides the grace needed for man to be saved, but His grace is active in sanctifying the believer until He is glorified. Uh, God is at work in our sanctification. We work, and God works. Um, any work that we do is spirit-dependent, believing the promises of God, that He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Um, that should be our motivation. Um, it also, a, a right understanding of this doctrine will um, not excuse a believer to live in sin because he, he quote-unquote, has the Spirit. Um, but he has the Spirit, so he should strive to live a life of holiness. Um, and it's the Spirit is the guarantee that we will persevere. So those are intro points. What did the uh, remonstrants think about this? 1610, 1609, back to our history real quick. 1609, Jacob Arminius dies. 1610, his followers, who are called the remonstrants, write a document about what they think about uh, salvation. And what they believe the Bible, they're trying to be faithful, uh, teaches about God's work in salvation. Um, the fifth point, that kind of left hanging. And like, ah, I don't know. I don't know about perseverance. I don't know if a man that, a person that's saved will always be saved. I don't know the answer to that question. But by the time the canons, or by the time the synod meets in 1618, they have identified what their position is. Okay, so they, they say that. Um, they believe by the time of the synod in 1618 that true believers can fall from true faith and can fall into such sins as cannot be consistent with true and justifying faith. So they're saying somebody that's once saved can lose their salvation, but then they also can be saved again. They also argue that that is not only possible, but it happens frequently. Um, that a believer then can return to grace through repentance um, and be saved again. So kind of a back and forth. Am I in? Am I out? Um, my one critique of that will be, how does that impact assurance? And that's my critique, but that's what the divines at Dort are concerned about too. So, last point, has 15 articles and 9 rejections. Um, articles 1 through 3. <clears throat> Admits that Christians still sin. I think we all can agree to that. Might admit that Christians all still sin this morning. <clears throat> but then it declares that God is, but God is faithful, mercifully strengthening them, strengthening them in grace, once conferred on them, and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. That's one through three, understanding uh, sin still exists in the believer. Um, four through seven talks about other things. We'll break that down. One, true Christians can fall into serious sins that have serious consequences. Um, Peter, rejecting Jesus. David, just a couple biblical examples for you. Um, but God is still at work to complete His work of salvation in those individuals' lives. And that is done through means, the Word and the Spirit primarily. And the true Christian's life should be marked by repentance as well. Brings us already to Article 8. Fast breaking through this. The certainty of preservation. So, how, so preservation, perseverance. 
Think of them as synonyms. So it is, not by their own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy, that they neither forfeit faith and grace totally, nor remain in their downfalls to the end and are lost. With respect to themselves, this not only easily could happen, but also undoubtedly would happen. But with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen. Since his plan cannot be changed, his promise cannot fail, the calling according to his purpose cannot be revoked, the merit of Christ as well as his interceding and preserving cannot be nullified, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be invalidated nor wiped out. Those are, uh, those are not gray area words. Like, cannot fail, um, cannot be changed, cannot be revoked. I mean, those are definite. That's black and white, right? Um, so, there's certainty of preservation because it's in God's work. The goal here is to exalt, exalt God and what God has done and uh, lessen man's influence. So then Article 9 through 15 of this section talk about assurance. And this, again, is another aspect of where they've become um, applicable. Um, number one, they say that believers can have assurance. Um, and previously, in uh, the doctrine when we talked about election, it did say in one of the articles, I think it was one of the articles, that but assurance comes to different people at different times by varying means. Okay, so just because Ian has assurance doesn't mean Matt's assurance is the exact same. Um, it, it, it could vary, and it's impacted by different things, and that's partly because of who we are. Um, but believers can have assurance in who God is. And that's what that's the next point says. That assurance is rooted in the promises of God, in the testimony of the Spirit, which testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, they admit that we don't always experience full assurance, um, yet we can have it. Um, and then Dort, the, the, the Dortian divines make the case that this doctrine, like all the others, should inspire the Christian to pursue holiness. Um, by understanding these doctrines, you don't have an excuse to live lax or immoral or contrary to God's law. Article 12. <clears throat> and this is how they describe that. This assurance as an incentive to godliness. This assurance of perseverance, however, so far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured, is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness in cross-bearing suffering, and in, co in confessing the truth, and of well-founded joy in God. Reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive to a serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works, as is evidenced from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. God uses means as he preserves the believer. The Word, the Spirit, the Lord's Supper. When you come to the Lord's Supper, God's ordained that for you to consider your life, see if there's anything you need to repent of. I'm bearing that. That's two weeks from now when we take the Lord's Supper again. But it is God's means um, 
for um, identifying in you um, where you are with God. And it should remind you of the perfect sacrifice that Christ made on your behalf. And it's rooted in that, not any good work of your own. So, in conclusion, just for this point, I've touched on my conclusions as I said it already, but some argue that this doctrine, the idea that people uh, are going to persevere results in a license to immorality or a lack, lax approach to godliness. Okay, so that's the argument today. Sometimes um, the, the people argue that the Reformed are uh, maybe not Reformed at Calvary Bible Church, but the Reformed faith in general uh, results in lax living because you're assured of your salvation, so you're not going to pursue holiness. That, that is a critique. I'm not necessarily saying it's an acceptable one. Um, if that was a critique today, it was a critique immediately during this time in the 1600s as this doctrine is being explained. Um, so, interesting that they were aware of that and they wrote about that as well. Um, they also wrote that this section primarily to explain how these truths really are an incentive to see God's grace worked out in the indwelling Holy Spirit. Really, seek out the things of the Lord and identify them. <clears throat> okay, so a couple things. That's all the doctrines, but I have some concluding thoughts of all of those, okay? One, so a hundred years before this, and I think Keith accused me of bringing everything back to the Reformation at our elders' meeting. I think he said it just like that. Do you bring everything back to that? And I'm like, no, no, not really. But my notes illustrate that. A uh, hundred years before this, there's a debate between Martin Luther and Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus, the great humanist of the Roman Catholic Church, Luther, the great reformer, uh, the one that's beginning the Protestant Reformation, and they're, they actually write books back and forth to each other. Uh, Luther's book is The Bondage of the Will. And this is, after reading Erasmus's work, this is Luther's response to him. He says, Your thoughts of God are too human. Um, and I think on some level we can bring that to bear here in our study of the canons of Dort. J.I. Packer um, has kind of interpreted, um, interpreted Luther to say this. He says, your theology has too little worship in it. So Pastor Dan says all the time, right, our theology should be taking us somewhere it should, your theology should lead to doxology. We should be worshiping. It should do something for us. Our theology should change us. And I think the canons of Dort do well for that. Um, so in Luther's case, he thought that um, Erasmus was giving too much credit to man's ability and not enough to God's sovereignty. That's definitely what the uh, men at Dort were doing. Um, Erasmus was not thinking of Protestantism, though. He was thinking of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Um, but I will tell you that the Reformed Christians in Europe became a dynamic witness for Christ. It propelled the Dutch. Uh, so secularly, the Dutch um, started becoming part, not just during this time, but around this time. Uh, they were very involved in the age, age of discovery, going to different places, um, and Dutch missionaries were sent forth from this group of people, so they're full of missionary zeal. Um, not to say that that has endured in the Netherlands, as we talked about it being a pretty secular country, but um, for a couple hundred years, 
uh, the, the faithfulness of the Dutch church impacted the world. Um, last two concluding thoughts. Uh, my hope in this study is that you have a greater understanding of God's activity in salvation. And I hope as well and pray that your hope will be more greatly fixed on God as the anchor of your soul and the rock of your salvation.